This is a Strategist, episode 1048. My name is Zane Velji. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. Guys, what is going on? It's Easter Monday, Carter. Um, have you been doing what one does on Easter Monday? Uh, resurrected? No, I was fine all weekend. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm good. Thank you. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I had a full day. It was a regular day for me, regular work day. Yeah, I think the resurrection happens on Easter Sunday. So yeah, Carter, I, I said think, that uh, yesterday to my family, but they were all like, "No, it happens on Monday." And I was, I, I don't know. So it's like the whole thing is like on the third day. So do you count the, the Good Friday as the first day? I think that's what it listen, ultimately. Comes this is your to. people, Corey. I mean, this is not my people, so I'm not, I'm not really up to speed with the whole resurrection thing. But yeah, I, yeah. I was not resurrected today. I, uh, I had a nice day though. Very happy. Uh, went uh, seven for nine on my AFL predictions. I know you guys always. Boy, speaking of resurrection, um, the live show. Uh, I mean, I want to resurrect the vibes yeah. in, from the live show. Stephen Carter had to consult a doctor after his uh, his buzzy appearance uh, and buzzworthy appearance. Uh, but I noticed that uh, we may need to consult someone else for the uh, the live show as well. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the audio is not up yet um, because it was hard. Any any questions? I no. believe we are. I feel like we are people who anti, pay, right? Stephen Carter, as you know, we are an anti-hard podcast. We we do not like things that are well, hard listen, on the podcast. Yeah, we don't like yeah. hard. No. Here here's what people need to understand about our technical capacity. Here and let's at be clear, this is not a justification. This is an mm-hmm. explanation. Please go ahead, Corey. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's a justification. This, oh, this okay. is this absolutely justified. justified. Well, okay. just be clear, everyone. Yeah. This is a justification, right, not an so explanation. So we get in. Yeah. Good. So we get into a thing. I don't even know what you call it, but I can see you. You can see me. We're recording. I hit record. We talk for an hour. I hit stop. I hit mix. And then I hit post. And that that is the – and I think I do a pretty good job of that. You do a great job of that. That is some quality stuff that you do. Yeah. I mean, in all the third uh, click, This one was going to be harder. So – Yeah. That is exactly how it goes. That was a that was an yeah, Easter the joke. The podcast for you, is risen. That was yep. an Easter joke for you, Carter. I feel like no, I really enjoyed it. it. Yeah, no, Thank I, you. no, I was uh, there. Steve, I was there. Stephen Carter. I'm I'm going to move it on. I, we have so much to talk about. Let's move it on to our first segment. Our first segment. Will it matter, guys? Here's the thing. I have said that I am going to stay away from Alberta politics, but some stories, Stephen Carter, some stories, Corey Hogan, one cannot just stay away from. One needs to talk about. And that one story that I want to talk about right now, guys, is our premier, Danielle Smith. She's under ethics investigation related to the COVID-19 prosecution. I want to go into this story a bit. I don't want to go into it heavily. I want to talk about it a bit. Now, um, I want to talk about whether this will matter from the frame of the election, because this is what's most, very interesting. Stephen Carter, the background on this story, this is a, a leaked conversation that was, uh, I think, about a couple weeks ago now, uh, put out there by the NDP and CBC. Yep. Um, Daniel Smith on this uh, 10 plus minute recording with Arthur Pulowski, uh talking about his COVID uh, prosecution, many of the facts already known out there as it relates to her saying, leave it with me, uh, an unsavory character, Pulowski with a, with a long history of discrimination. Um, she has come out with a couple of different tactics. Tactic number one, initially saying, um, I am going after the CBC and refusing to talk to media yeah. about this. Uh, tactic number two on a radio show recently saying, well, I actually thought I was talking to a, a leader of another political party in, in Mr. Pulowski, who at that time was the leader of, you guys may need to remind me, was it the Alberta Independent Party or some political party that he'd set up? Um, she came I mean. Yeah, right. She came up with that. Yeah, they're all yeah. the same. We'll yeah. we'll get to it. And now, Stephen Carter, the cherry on top, one might call it, is that uh, Alberta Premier Smith says she is under investigation by the province ethics commissioner into whether she interfered in administration of of justice related to these prosecutions. We've talked about this story. You've talked about this story with Annalise, but I want to now go in with this newest development. Carter, maybe let me start with you in this conversation. This newest development. Does it matter to the election? And then let's go into how can we make it or how does one make it matter uh, in in this upcoming election, which is T minus just, uh, you know, a little bit more than six weeks away. Carter, over to you. Well, 
I, I can't help but think we're giving you a, a, a free strategy session here, Zane, but you're welcome. We'll do it anyways. We'll do it anyways. But here's the thing. Uh, yes, it will matter. And it will matter not because necessarily of, you know, how the elect how the electorate are going to treat it. It will matter because of how the media is going to treat it. Um, mm. The media, you know, the media are fair all the time. Uh, and I know that people feel like the media aren't fair sometimes, but they always work very hard to be fair. And they won't just cover a story just because that story is is interesting to them and they want to get to the bottom of it or those types of things. They actually need new developments in order to cover their story. And this premier, uh, for whatever reason, feels some sort of moral obligation to continue to give the media new angles to cover. Uh, I mean, she had said, I think... I think she'd said, you know, kind of disingenuously that she couldn't speak to the issue because it was in front of the courts. Um, that is something that Corey and I, you know, we, we've seen it a million times where that line is used, but it's effective line because it, it gets you out of a problem. And then she goes in on her own radio show where no one's interviewing her. No one's asking her the, the hard questions. She goes and states that a, a whole brand new reason, a whole new theory of the case as to why she's actually, um, you know, speaking to to Arthur Pulaski, um, which is bullshit. And everybody knows it's bullshit. Now it gives the media another opportunity to take her around one more time. And speaking of someone who watched her go around and around and around in 2012, this is her pattern. She tries to get out of the problem instead of allowing the problem to go away. And she's allowing well, this problem to to fester and to, and to develop because she will not get out of her own way. Uh, and whoever's advising her is giving her bad lines. They are giving her a bad way of getting out of out of these problems. And, and she's digging it deeper. Um, so the media will continue to cover it. Um, and they've been given reason to recover it uh, by no one except the premier herself. Uh, that's a very interesting thought, Carter, that that frame of a political leader. And in this case, it's Danielle Smith. But I think that's a really interesting examination right. you've just put on there of a political leader trying to get out or solve a problem versus letting one go away. And, and I think there is something to to examine there more holistically. But, Corey, I want to give you the same opportunity I did to Stephen, which is uh, the first top line question with inertia as its only fuel perhaps, and of course, opposition parties and other political parties. But with this story just kind of on the path that it's on, will it matter T minus six weeks in your mind? Yeah, I think the fact that um, I, I think the premier was coming to the realization it was going to matter, which is why she's changed her story. In my opinion, this notion that, oh, it's in front of the courts. Now I um, now I can't talk about it. By the way, very interesting read because if all you need to do is sue somebody and then you're not allowed to talk about something, let's call that a loophole in public discourse, shall we? That's, that's, <laughs> that's a pretty exactly, fucking big yeah, loophole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, historically, we've seen that more as I, I'm under legal investigation. I'm in trouble. I, because it's somewhat tied to the idea that you don't incriminate yourself mm -hmm. right i mean that's fundamentally where this roots in so the idea that you would sue somebody and then not talk about it is very novel shall we say um but like not but it novel, wasn't working. novel i mean the for point, the reasons i said yeah novel to the point that you found it like novel to the point of absurdity okay i thought you were yeah. gonna say novel to the point of like strategically interesting no. no novel to the point of absurdity and the media immediately jumped down her throat on it and it wasn't going to go away and i think some other obvious challenges came once they had a bit more time to think about it like holy shit would this ever be a bad strategy during say a leader's debate where all of a sudden you have rachel notley just hammering you to death describing it exactly as she sees fit and your only line is I can't speak about it. It's before the courts. Because again, this is tied to the idea of self-incrimination. That's why people don't say these things. They don't want to put something that might get them. So it's going to look guilty. It was a bad idea. The other thing is the idea that you would give them until the start of the election, I'm sure seemed clever to somebody at some point. But you're just firing up the issue at the start of the election when CBC you, says no dice. You mean they, right? they being CBC uh, issuing their apology and their retraction by that uh, that late April deadline? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it just doesn't make any kind of sense. So my sense of the radio show was a little bit different. Like, I'm not sure that I would go so far as to say it was a 
aggressive strategic decision, but it did sort of feel like somebody who knew her answer wasn't working, so she was trying a different answer. And if I if I understand, I didn't listen to it, but I believe there actually is a host from Chorus, Stephen, who's there. So maybe yeah, she but was no being one who's really putting bit. her to the gears. Come yeah, on, for sure, agree with that one hundred percent. But maybe she just got a look in the room. Is my point where the guy's like, "Fucking really, are you, are you being serious right now?" and and drifted towards her party leader answer which is uh, is not a strong answer either i well, mean ultimately let, now the problem is there are multiple stories out there well let me ask you this yeah. uh, you guys have both mentioned the statement of not commenting because Corey, oh, in the cbc case it was uh and i'm paraphrasing here because i don't have your exact words in front of me but she said it's probably going to be in front of the courts it's not that it's in the courts like yeah i'm gonna put it on i'm just i've, I've gently glided it on this track so like i can't fucking talk about it um carter they as in the premier's office has issued a very similar statement after this investigation let me read it to you the premier welcomes the investigation is fully cooperating with the commissioner and is confident the examination will confirm that there's been no such interference that part seems pretty standard fare then the second part as a result of this ongoing investigation it would be inappropriate for the premier to comment on this further until the investigation is completed is that better strategically than what we heard uh, or is that exactly the same in your, in your mind in that same um sort of trap as Corey may have listed it that he's put himself in and Corey's eagerly wanting to go first so Corey, i'm, I'm gonna just gonna jump over carter and go yeah this well, better be gold I, yeah yeah because look yeah better I, be I'll, good. I'll say this it is it is the actual reason why you might not say something if you're under investigation so they have <laughs> not it for good it's not a good time when you're being investigated by the ethics commissioner but it becomes a little bit more legitimate at this point to say well i'm not going to to say it there's an investigation going on I got to say something about the ethics commissioner investigation, though. The ethics commissioner's job is not to make sure politicians act ethically. It's much narrower than that, right? It has to do with whether, uh, you know, there's the lobbyist registry, but there's also the idea of whether they're advancing private interests using their public role. And um, I don't really know if the ethics commissioner's scope allows them Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, to, but like it's not their bread and butter either way to say like, are they interfering in the administration of justice? To me, the ethics commissioner's angle there would be, are you advancing a private interest in your interference in justice? Yeah. Right? And if Arthur Pulowski is not actually a friend of yours, I, like there's a real chance here that the ethics commissioner, quote unquote, clears Danielle Smith because of a much narrower scope. And I think that's the thing that you've got to keep an eye on. If you're an Alberta, uh, you know, news hound commentary at whatever it is, because this this might not be apples to oranges. And it's something you've got to keep an eye on. Let me take well, that further, Corey, because this is like go going to traffic court to try and settle, settle civil litigation. You've gone to the wrong place and you're asking the wrong question. Uh, the traffic court may say, yeah, you, you know, this person didn't break any rules uh, according to our traffic regulations. Yeah, they, but they, they may have broken all kinds of different rules um, in different in, you know, different courts or different jurisdictions, different different laws. The ethics and uh, the, the ethics everybody's got governed, right? Whether it's the privacy commissioner, the ethics commissioner, the, the, they don't have unlimited scope of purview. And when you ask the, like, I want to know, like, I heard that it was the NDP who pushed for this ethics investigation. I hope it wasn't. I mean, the idea that you're going to push it off to someone, to some other entity, especially a toothless ethics commissioner that, I mean, basically every decision that comes out of there at worst is, yeah, I didn't think they should do that. So I've, I've told them not to do that anymore. Um, you know, why on earth would you want this before the ethics commissioner when right now it's actually in front of the only court that matters? Public opinion. Public opinion is the only court that matters to the NDP. And if it was if it was them who pushed this off to um, the ethics commissioner, uh, it was a tremendous error because now they've taken it out of the court of public opinion and put it into a... Um, you know, in, into the ethics commissioner court, where again, I would argue it doesn't belong anyways, it does not belong on the ethics commissioner's docket. Corey, I, I do want to get back to your point about timeline and scope, because you've talked about scope for a second. I'll get to that. But Carter makes an interesting point here around, does the moniker, does the label, does the headline that 
Danielle Smith is under investigation. Does that have enough juice heading into the next six weeks? We've seen something similar with Jason Kenny because we almost have an apples to apples ish comparison, at least a fruits to fruits comparison of, you know, Jason <laughs> Kenny, um, you know, the cops are after him under investigation, RCMP investigation. It didn't seem to make a difference last election. I'm curious in your mind, are we strangely enough just, you know, climatized to that? Was that different? I'm just kind of curious. Does the fact that this has now been punted have any benefit uh, regardless of when this lands and what the scope is to label the premier as as someone under investigation or ethics investigation. Yeah. So the thing about the difference, it, well, there's two differences, but let's talk about the, the one that I think matters the most in terms of a looming election is Jason Kenney, the idea that he cheated at an election, um, unproven, I want to be super clear, right? Mm-hmm. The suggestion that, that is out there. And that we still don't is, know the result um, of that, by the way, just to break. No, we don't speed, know what's right? going on. And, yeah. and the reality is it's been years. And at this point, it almost feels like, would it have any effect, even if it came now, unless the entire yeah. front bench of the government was somehow involved as well? Mm-hmm. No, I doubt it would have any real effect. Uh, it would probably be some sort of fine, and that would be the end of it, I feel, at this point. But the um, that wasn't something that reinforced a negative about Jason Kenney. I, I mean, it feels like a funny thing to say, but the idea that Jason Kenney is calculating and gets things done is not something... Like, if you're voting for Jason Kenney and the UCP in 2019, it probably wasn't because you thought he was, like, the nicest guy in the world. Like, we had a lot of polling at the time that showed his negatives were higher than Rachel Notley's. Mm-hmm, it was kind of mm-hmm. tossed in, right? He trailed his party, but he was seen as a guy who could get things done. He got the merger done between the PCs and the Wild Rose, got things done. Yeah. The big difference this time is if there is a big looming question mark over Danielle Smith, it's her judgment. And this is this is this is right in that box. This is really calling into question Daniel Smith's judgment. And it reinforces a concern that Calgarians have. And I'll just say Calgarians because the election is about Calgarians here. And that's why it matters. And that's what makes it a bit different here. Politicians are uh, a group that invites cynicism from the public. The public thinks politicians do certain things, you know, certain bad things. I think the public should smarten up and and not actually give the politicians a pass by just assuming that all politics is dirty. They should ask for clean politics. But this is something that really calls into question a core competency that's required in a premier. And that's what makes it different. Yeah. And there's an ends justifies the means type of feeling to the to the Kenny thing. Right. He, he had to bring everything together and he has to he had to save the province so that we could all have jobs and that type of feeling. And I, I think that some people were prepared to kind of give him the, the, the a pass because the ends justified the means. But I don't think that we're going to see that type of uh, situation for Danielle in the, right now, because um we're not in the same place. She's she's the premier. You know, Jason, uh, you know, was the victim of an overzealous elections, you know, uh, Alberta fiasco that was run by the by the the evil NDP. Right. Like it was a different time, different characters and different understanding. So this is this this does reinforce that negative for Danielle. And I think it becomes really hard for her to get out from under that negative. Uh, so it's a it's a totally different structure. Carter, I'm I'm going to put you guys on teams. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because you guys can take the ball and run with it with with Annalise. Because I'm sh- assuming to your first answers for both of you, paraphrasing, there'll probably be a story going forward. But Carter, if there is no turns in this story beyond what I've just explained and outlined with the premier un- under investigation, how do you give it more juice? And Corey, you're going to be acting on the other team. How do you drag this story down, bury it, hide it? Do you bury it, hide it? If it, if your point is to get away with it, Carter, I'll go with you first, then I'll come to Corey on it. Um, on on what strategies or tactics you'd use to give this story more juice, mold it, contour it, whatever you need to do. And Corey, on the opposite side of that question, 
I think that the number one thing is to find patterns. Uh, Corey really articulated well what the issue was of this was for Danielle. It's not just that that she took Arthur Pulowski's uh, telephone call. It was, this is a pattern of bad decision making. She can't be trusted. We don't know what she's saying is actually true. So if we don't know that what she's saying is actually true, then we best um, find other examples of when she may be lying. And I think there's lots of them over the course of, of her, of her kind of tenure, if you will, uh, as a columnist and as a, um, as a political figure, she has said and done many different things that kind of reinforce this, this attitudinal, you know, this her attitude doesn't fit with the office of being the premier. And I think that that's the way to go for it. Now, keep the pressure up on this specific issue. Um, you know, I think that there's ways to put additional pressure on her cabinet uh, to get more of this story out. Uh, I think that if it starts to look like they're going to lose their seats because they're not being honest and truthful around this issue, that there may be they, maybe they start making, you know, leaks start happening um, as the rats try and sink, uh, escape the sinking ship and hold on to their individual jobs. Um, so keeping the pressure up on this issue while you know, finding parallel issues that that show the same uh, proclivities would probably be the strategy that I'd recommend. Corey, how would you how would yeah. you drag this thing down? Well, look, I I'm not actually a big fan of the notion that any strategy beats no strategy, but I think in this case, pick one. Right in in some ways, if the uh, premier had stuck to her line with the media as untenable as that was becoming, she'd be in a much stronger place yeah. than right now. Right, and in fact, when the ethics commissioner stuff came to the forefront, it would be reinforcing. It would be yeah, see, we I welcome the investigation. As said before, I'm not talking about it. Obviously, I think this is nonsense. I am I'm suing the CBC now. I mean. There's 11 minutes of tape. I mean, this is the fundamental challenge that the the UCP has here. Um, and so I think that the original strategy, not not to Monday morning quarterback, was the wrong one. Like, yeah. you're asking people to deny their ears and their eyes. Well, their mm. ears, really. She was on the phone. But, but and that's, that's not easy to do. That's not, uh, you know, a, a particularly great place to be. If they were still so unsure as to what needed to be said, they shouldn't have come out swinging the way they did at the CBC because the idea that, oh, it was a party leader I'm talking to seems like such a swing from where she was before. I think that's fundamentally the challenge she now has. So in terms of burying this, I think that in a funny way, it's not about burying it now. It's about making sure it's dead for the election. Mm. And so if there is anything else to drop, if you have any other gambits, if you're going to clean up this CBC lawsuit thing, you do it now. Now, 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 right? Unfortunately, you've already sent a letter saying uh, they have 28 days. Um, I think maybe you, uh, you'd you say, well, listen, now that it's in front of the ethics commissioner, I, actually, I don't know, even know, that just feels like it's guilty and weak. I, I feel like at this point, now you're just sort of stuck. And if there was a way to do it, I would accelerate the time frame. So Maybe I would be picking on the minute the CBC puts another story out that I feel like I disagree with and you have an updated letter from being like, well, now you've got, I don't even know. I mean, I'm not even sure if you could, but like now you've got one week and let's just get it out now and let's start this thing now. And the courts don't move so fast that we're going to have a decision anyways before the end of the election. So, uh, you know, let's get all of the pieces out of the way now. That's Let's not you have to drag it into the Did election. you want to jump on this, Carter? It seems like you had yeah, you know, that, an idea that you wanted to I, talk about. That, that's what I didn't understand with this. I mean, why would they put such a long time frame on yeah. the response? Why would they, you know, say we're going to wait until the eve of the election call? Um, I mean, is it possible that they were thinking, well, maybe we can delay the election call if the CBC, you know, like we can make the CBC some sort of massive enemy. They won't even respond. They won't, they, you know, I, I don't know, but it was such a massive misstep to give that length of time. There is absolutely no reason to give that length of time. Um, like go forth. And especially given that this really isn't a legal strategy, it's actually a public relations strategy. Uh, I don't think there's any lawyer you know, worth his, his or her salt that would say, oh, yeah, no, we, we've really got a good chance of winning this. Um, 
but there's certainly maybe some PR professionals who would say, yeah, this this could help us in in the long run. Um, so this is this is what really blows my mind about it too, because yeah. there's only one reason to say like the week before the election starts, this is your deadline. It's if you think this is your issue is a winner to, for you. Yeah, they're or they're going to like yeah, but, yeah, somehow help. No, 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 not I mean they think yeah, like they think it's a winner. And I don't yeah. understand yeah. that. There's like, no way. There's no way this is a winner. I mean, sure, there's the anti CBC crowd, but they're already voting for you. Yeah, they're right? like that's it. You have them. You're going to run against the CBC, especially on this ground. This is such shaky ground. If you make it an election issue, a bunch of people who've been asleep and not caring about it and at best hearing passing reference to this will go out of their way and they'll listen to it. Audio exists. And that's not audio that's going to leave people yeah. with a good impression of you. I'm, I mean, I'm sorry. That's just the reality here. She did not come off sounding like a particularly strong individual even. Even if you set aside the ethical considerations, it was like, I can't get things done. I'm working on it. Like, who was the premier on that call? Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, she was subservient to him and his design, yeah. his needs. And, you know, again, what the hell is she doing taking that telephone call? I mean, we've gone through that a couple of different times, but... It really was a monumental mistake, and those types of mistakes have a way of haunting you for quite some time. I'm going to leave that segment there, let you guys pick that up uh, when you will. I'm sure that story will will be around, and move it on to our next segment. Our next segment, Stephen Carter, margin of error. I want to talk about polling, oh. Stephen Carter, and I want to talk oh. about polling in the province of Ontario Because after some record low turnout in the last Ontario provincial election, not to mention some real dog shit uh, candidates, the province's chief electoral officer is calling for a ban on publishing the results of political polls for the final stretch of the campaign. Let me let me give some context for listeners who may who may not be familiar with this. So as part of their 2022 debrief or audit of the election, the um, the election watchdog indicates that political polls have the potential to influence election results. Uh, and under a heading called legislative changing, the report recommends disallowing the publishing uh, and reporting of political polls two weeks in advance of election day. So for those keeping track at home, that would be like if you're uh, in this Alberta election, May 15th, uh, mid-May, last two weeks, no public opinion polls, no horse race polls, no understanding where things are going. Uh, to continue, uh, political polls have the influence to, to influ- have the potential to influence election results. Um, he recommends that po- no public polling uh, results uh, stating political party favorability be published in the final two weeks. And he cites low voter turnout as being one of those things. Many respondents lost interest in the election due to early reports of a one-sided result. It says 36 polls will publish in the two weeks leading up to the vote in June 2nd of last year in Ontario. I want to talk about this. There is a strategy element here. There's a there's probably a charter element here, which I think is interesting. Uh, if you recall, there was the election blackouts that we had uh, back in the yeah. in, in the federal election days. So there's probably that element to it. But this is the strategist, Stephen Carter, and I want to start with the strategy elements of this. Let's get to that stuff in a second. I know there's a bit of a soapbox that you guys want to get on, but can I go with the strategy stuff first? If you had to deal with this reality, I want to go into straight, this is now a thing. This had massive public support. How would they know? But it did. This had massive public support. This is something that is now instituted. Stephen Carter, just explain to me, as a guy who's run so many campaigns, so many elections, guiding the ship as a campaign manager, guiding the ship as a strategist, um, on a province-wide or a city-wide race, talk to me about the impacts of not having political opinion polls in the last two weeks. Just paint me a picture, uh, just like, only like the two of you can. What would that reality look like? What would that terrain look like? Because I don't think we fully appreciate it um, in the absence of of political polls. You might say it's actually not that different, Zane, or you might say, actually, the domino effects and the downstream effects would mean this wouldn't happen. If that doesn't happen, this doesn't. Paint me a picture, Carter. Let's start with you and Corey. Maybe I'll get you to paint a similar picture, building on what Carter's kind of put on the table. Every single candidate would be in first place, uh, because every candidate (laughs) and their team would say, uh, we just did numbers. 
Uh, we obviously can't release them. It's against the law to release them. But we are looking solid. We have got the best polling. We're in the best spot. We're absolutely going to win. And I can now say that because there's no data that's going to come out to refute that. Uh, absolutely nothing is going to come out. So now the poll that is released uh, three weeks in advance of, of the campaign or, you know, on the eve of the of the publication ban, that poll is now going to be uh, gospel. Right. And we're not going to see any movement. We're not going to be able to see movement from, uh, you know, the, the long shot uh, Nanhead Nenshi campaign where he's making the moves in the last three weeks. And all of a sudden, people now know that their vote for Nanhead Nenshi isn't going to be wasted. So it pushes them to go and vote for the underdog candidate. Uh, in fact, we have higher turnout because the underdog candidate is now viable. Oh my God, this is so exciting. I finally get to vote for someone who I want to vote for, say the voters in Calgary when, uh, when, when that actually occurs. I mean, there would be none of these types of moves. And, and the, the, the worst part is that the cynics, the cynics, the, the, the cynical, um, you know, operators who are going to, to, to just, you know, say that their candidate is winning, um, who have already used polls in, in kind of this really negative fashion. They're the ones who are still going to benefit from it because they're going to just make shit up and absolutely nothing is going to be available in the public record to say that that's incorrect. It's, it's total bullshit. It, it is one of the worst decisions. They have drawn a correlative effect of a lot of polls have been published and therefore people, um, didn't vote without causation. That's absolutely, they have absolutely no evidence. I mean, we've, we've got millions, like hundreds of elections. How many of them have shown blowouts where people went, oh, I'm not going to vote for it anymore. This one in Ontario, this is just absolutely horrific, uh, misunderstanding of how elections work. And the fact that it's been done by quote unquote professionals, uh, what else does it play here? Um, cause this is just bullshit. Corey, I'm going to get to you. Can I get to you in one second? I have one quick follow-up with Carter, which is, Carter, actually, I don't think I've ever asked you this on mm-hmm. the show. Do, are you a believer in that old sort of adage that some of our fellow political practitioners talk about saying, you know, in a race where someone is far out ahead, and I'm going to butcher what the actual phrase is, it's much more succinct than this, in a race where someone is so far out ahead that those that stay at home, it's actually not a sign of apathy. It's just a sign of, you know, a blessing to let the train go in the tracks that it's going in. That that if, if Doug Ford is ahead by 15 points and only 30% of voters show up, that it's a tacit endorsement, not by the additional 70, but by a portion of that additional 70 to say, you know what, I'm fine with the train going down that tracks. So are you a believer in that? I think that, vo- that voting, if we're going to continue to have voting as an option uh, instead of a requirement, um, then the right to choose not to vote uh, is is just as valid as the right to choose to vote. Uh, we have a lot of voters here in in, uh, in Alberta that will choose not to vote for the UCP or the NDP in this next election um, for for a number of, of issues or reasons that they consider to be valid. And who am I to, to deny them that? Uh, voter turnout is not actually the measure of whether an election has been successful. The measure of whether a successful election has occurred is actually whether or not the election is seen to be safe, uh, the election is seen to be fair, and that people have the information that they required to make the decisions that they made. Um, I don't think that voter turnout necessarily is the uh, is a sole mechanism or a sole or the sole determinant of whether or not we've had a good election. Corey, I'm, I'm going to go back to the main question, if that's okay for you. Carter started painting a picture for us. What would happen if we had a polling blackout in the last two weeks of, of a rate period? He talked about everyone being in first place. He talked about the poll that gets released just before the blackout is being gospel. He talked about the fact that no real understanding that, and Carter, I'm going to paraphrase once again, that people are in like this black hole. They have no idea what's going on. Everyone could be in first. Everyone's viable. Um, but it also limits the chance of a come from behind. It limits the chance of a late surge. It limits, limits the chance of a crescendo at the end that's untracked or um, doesn't necessarily get the resources mm-hmm. that that an entry campaign or a lot of late break win campaigns have gotten. Corey, extend that picture. What else will you be adding if you were painting a picture for, for the listeners as to what a polling blackout in the last two weeks of, a, of an election could do? Yeah. So for the first election where there's a polling blackout in particular, I think Stephen has hit the nail on the head. Everyone will be in first. There'll be all of these polls, quote unquote, leaked uh, that'll go around social media. Like, you're just not going to be able to put that genie back in the bottle. And 
the reality is when a poll gets published, there are requirements these days. What was the sample size? What were the questions? What was the order? When there's a poll that's leaked, that's not even supposed to be out there. I mean, by definition, you're not going to get that kind of rigor because it's not supposed to be out there to begin with. So I just think that that's, it's pretty dangerous and it, it is ultimately going to make voters pretty nihilistic. And nihilistic voters, I think, is a bigger threat to democracy than complacent voters. Because, like, what's going to happen is people are just going to say, well, it's all bullshit. Everybody's faking it. It's fine. And I just don't know how it serves anyone to have voters flying blind. I don't know how it serves anyone that voters would have access to less information than campaigns. Don't we want voters to be able to make informed decisions? And look, I'm going to get back to your strategy question because it's an interesting one. How would I do it? And I want to talk about what would happen in kind of future elections. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, like in Ontario in particular, a three-party election, which of the other of the two progressive parties, the two left-wing parties is up? That information matters a lot. Right. Yeah. We we talk a lot about accessibility, viability, intent, you know, accessibility. Would you be willing to vote for that person? Viability. Do you think they're going to win intent? Who are you planning to vote for? Those are the three things I always mm-hmm. measure in a political poll. And the reason why viability is an important part of that mix, it tends to be one we skip over, is because there's a collapsing of the vote that happens as people say, well, I'm open to these two parties. I'm not open to that party. And by the way, it might be I'm open to the liberals and conservatives, not NDP. Mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm, open to liberals mm-hmm. and NDP, not conservatives. And they want to make a call and they want their vote to matter. And that coalescing is important in a three-party democracy. And voting, uh, you know, with polling information, it's useful. It's useful to have polling information when you're doing that. And look, you can maybe walk around your neighborhood. Hey, there's more red signs than orange signs. Okay, Right. But why would you deny voters that additional information? Because what you may end up having is, well, how about this as an example? Do you remember the 2015 election? Feels like an eternity ago. Mm -hmm. But the liberals and the NDP were neck and neck until they weren't until the 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 Quebec French language debate where um you know there's this I won't go too deep into it but the liberals started to pull away they came out strongly against the nicab ban the NDP dissembled de- and then all of a sudden the liberals pulled ahead a bit and then because they were ahead a bit they pulled a bit ahead a bit more and the NDP vote collapsed and the liberal vote climbed because voters saw this virtuous cycle where it's like oh the liberals are starting to get ahead in the polls let's go to the liberals because the liberal voters and the NDP voters, I think it was something like 68% of them collectively said the last thing they wanted was another Stephen Harper, uh, you know, election. What if we didn't have polling there, right? I mean, it's quite possible Stephen Harper would have won that election because you wouldn't have seen those small changes and people would have maintained the liberals and the NDP at the same point. And that's actually not that's ni- That's how you build nihilistic voters, because then they start saying like, well, most of us didn't want Stephen Harper and Stephen Harper still won. But polling was a secret ingredient that allowed people to say, OK, these guys are getting ahead of those guys. We don't want Stephen Harper. We're going to vote liberal. That's yeah. important. That's important it, it, in a three party democracy. And, and you're, the, you're, reason, you're right. the reason the reason it doesn't cl- matter. Yeah. You know, like the reason why they choose to I mean. It, it people make decisions on, for weird reasons in elections and polls are one of those weird reasons. They are not a worse reason than anything else. They are just a different reason. So, um, you know, pulling that off and, and saying, well, that's not a good enough reason just because, you know, um, the polling is not a good enough reason for you to change your vote. Um, that's, it's so fucking arbitrary. It's just, yeah. why would you remove that particular reason? Uh, for a for a vote to be cast or not to be cast that that is just it's insanity to me it's just so weak and um i just i, I mean this is going to favor a, a party absolutely this would favor i i believe a governing party especially in a three in a three uh three horse race which maybe is why it's being suggested in ontario you know, one one of the Corey, you talk about a vote collapse. I think one of the most intriguing vote collapses, not necessarily a collapse, but a, a you know the test of viability that happened was in Ontario in the last election with the orange blue shift that happens in, in that we see around the labor vote. We we saw a version of that with private sector unions supporting Doug Ford, looking at the polls, looking at the polls, saying, okay, 
The NDP don't really have a shot here. We're seeing that this is probably a more de-risked move to go with Ford. Um, you know, that perhaps, if it was in the final two weeks, could not could not have happened. That that collective sort of endorsement shift and perhaps even that worker shift that we're seeing. I wanted you guys to set the train around what could happen. And then, Carter, I want you to put uh, your Machiavellian hat on saying, OK, I'm Stephen Carter, political <laughs> strategist, campaign practitioner. I don't set the rules. I play mm-hmm. by the rules. Corey, do you want to jump in before I jump into this? What, what did you want to? Yeah, I, I, one of the reasons why this particular issue animates me so much, why I hate this idea so much, is one of the reasons why I think we do this show is we're trying to show what happens behind the scenes. We talk mm-hmm. about the strategic considerations that go in. We try to demystify them. We also try to arm people to be able to see when this bullshit is coming towards them here. I fundamentally believe information is good for voters. And the idea that we are going to say voters can't be trusted with information uh, because they might then decide to sit on their asses is so fucking patronizing. It makes me insane. We live in a goddamn democracy. You know who should get the best, most current information? Everyone. All the time. The voters. And the idea that we'd be like, well, they can't, they can't handle it. You know, these are not four-year-olds who are not eating vegetables. These are voters making decisions and they can make decisions based on whatever information they want. And the more information, in my opinion, the better. Mm -hmm. Carter, you are now, you're now a political practitioner in Ontario where every voter is treated as a four-year-old who doesn't eat their vegetables. Carter, you are, you are now, (laughs) you've set the terrain. You said this is what's going to happen. Everyone could be in first place. Leak polls on social media. Um, you know, you, this this sort of information vacuum as it relates to polling, perhaps even this unethical sort of polling distribution on uh, online. Talk to me about how you're running a race now. What are you doing differently? How is Stephen Carter setting things up? I use Ontario. It doesn't have to be with the three parties. But tell me about fundamentally what changes for you as a political practitioner if there's a black hole in the last two weeks. You can go as simple or as expanded as you want. You could say things like, well, I'm actually commissioning a poll during that time and I'm leaking it online. I'm doing X, Y, and Z. Tell me what the new rules for winning in a race where everyone is first, there's a blackout on polling, looks like, Carter. This is now the reality and you're having to work with it. Well, I mean, the first thing you have to do is you have to shift the time that you're expecting to be winning, right? So um, <laughs> for the Nenshi campaign, we felt like we needed to be in third place on September 1st. For Gondek's campaign, we felt like we needed to be in uh, second place by June the 1st. So those dates vary based on when we think people are going to make their decision. You'll remember that our municipal campaign had the uh, provincial campaign right on, or the federal campaign right on top of it. So it was really going to be difficult to get uh, attention to get airspace and those types of things. So that now, basically, what you what you have to design is a campaign that peaks two uh, two weeks earlier. So you want to be in that campaign that is now peaking on in in you know two weeks before a writ date, which is already happening. I mean this this type of shift is already occurring because we are now seeing so much emphasis on. Um, uh, um, uh, preliminary polling, right? So advanced polling. So because of that emphasis on advanced polling, we're already putting a bigger emphasis on trying to peak at a certain date. All this is really doing is pushing us to peak two weeks in advance for sure. Then you want to have a series of internal polls that you can leak. And the leak may not be as, 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 uh, you know, devious as, as kind of, you know, putting out the uh, poll, um, through social media, it might just simply be you put out a poll, you uh, you you circulate it for internal use only, and of course um, that internal use only gets leaked out to your to the rest of the team. Um, I'll leave it to the to the listener to determine how nefarious that is, but that is that is the absolute least that will happen is that you will have your own internal polls uh, that you will use to get your own people excited. Because if your people think that you're in the game uh, and they think that other people aren't in the game, that you get a participation bonus. More people will participate. Um, So, you know, and I think that that's where they're fundamentally wrong on this is thinking that, you know, because there was some sort of polling or more information drove people away from the campaign. I actually think that more information draws people into it. Um, so I, I would I would have another poll in the can. 
and put that poll out and make sure that everybody on my team knew what the results were uh, without broadcasting it. Um, and then I'd really do some work to determine what it is that a broadcast looks like. Cause Corey's made a good point that, I mean, what do we even think broadcast looks like right now? Like, what does that even mean? Um, because the internet's changed everything. And when we put something, anything out, it's going to have legs beyond, uh, the expectations of, you know, a simple regulator. Corey, what would you, what would you add to Carter's list or what would you, what would your strategy look like if you had to if you were forced to run a race where there's a two-week blackout period carter talks about shifting dates and leaking polls not just overly simplified but carter that's kind of two of your your tactics Corey, oh yeah Yeah, do you agree with those tactics and if not what would you supplement what would you add what would you do differently i think that i would agree with those tactics if i was in first place and maybe if i was in second place if i was in Mm. third place there's a different opportunity available to you, which again, this is going to like a very cynical move and it's just going to feed voter nihilism. Part of why I think this is a stupid fucking idea. Like I can't underline that enough, but I, if I were in third and like not so far back third, it's unbelievable, but like, yeah. a, you know, a close third, I'd hold so much ammo for the last two weeks. I would, I would create this sense the minute the polls were off that there was this crazy momentum towards me. I'd fake this momentum while people were flying blind. I wouldn't put signs on public lawn. In Alberta, you're allowed to put signs on public lawn. Mm-hmm. In Calgary, at least, not in Edmonton. Yeah. I'd be doing that. They'd be popping up everywhere all of a sudden. I'd be holding back my sign orders. They'd be showing up everywhere. I'd get people who can go sign blind when they see a sign for two weeks, you know, I just be, we do this thing before elections on election night. You, I, you'll both know this tactic well, because you start to not notice the signs. So you'll get your volunteers to go around and move the signs on somebody's lawn mm-hmm. to like mm-hmm. the other side of the driveway or, you know, other part of the lawn, if it's on a corner so that people notice the signs again. Well, I would be doing that at the two week moment when it starts building that, that, you know, sense of momentum and then I would be saying, like, yeah, look at this. Like, we're really on the move. It's a shame that everything's blind now. Look at all this momentum. I'd be having events where I'd be pulling everything back. And I, you can make yourself look a lot bigger than you are. And that would be a very powerful tactic for a third party in a flying blind situation. And by the way, when Stephen Carter comes around with his polls accidentally leaking, we just say, that's bullshit, Right. But now here's the thing, Zane. A tactic like that's only going to work the first time, maybe the second time. It's going to talk about the Voters fool me once. wise to it after yeah. a couple of cycles. Yeah. 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 And and so uh, it's going to be a bit of a moving target, and you're going to have to change your tactics as things evolve. And in the long run, it looks exactly like what Steven said. It just sort of shifts out deadlines two weeks, right? And that's that's going to be the practical reality. So, so and, now our campaigns go from but, but a, so, a four-week period to a two-week period. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far, but I would say ultimately some of these things are just going to happen two weeks before. The idea of who's up and who's down is going to be frozen two weeks before. It doesn't mean it's not still going to be races in some cases. But So, Corey, yeah. would you say that like – timelines long-term impacts let's say this is you know let's say they do this in ontario and the elections commissioner is like it worked 61 percent participation this must be working yeah the last two weeks were a clusterfuck and we got to deal with that stuff online but correlation is not causation but let's just say they accept that as it's right i'm just i'm painting you a picture now let's the long-term impact of adopting this policy let's just say they adopt it on on a time horizon to say you know in order for us to test its efficacy we need to do this for a decade we need three election cycles a couple of them in our belt right so are you saying that the long-term impact here could simply be shifting timelines by a couple weeks with a lot of noise in the final two weeks like is 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 that where you think this will land or do you think it's actually more you use the word democratic, so I'm going to use that same word. Do you think it's more like democratically perverse than that? Yeah, I think if you know, some things will shift up, right? Like what's going to happen is if there is a last minute surge, people aren't going to see it. People aren't going to get behind it. People aren't going to believe it. So if you end up, say, going into that final two week period and let's say it's PCs, 40 percent, liberals, 35 mm-hmm. percent, NDP, well, like like. 10%, right? I don't I don't know. Like, well, then it's just going to be the liberals versus the PCs. And it's going to come down to that riding by riding. Doesn't mean the election won't matter in the last two weeks, but that's going to be the election. I, and I think that would be a real shame. That's really unfortunate. Um, 
some things will continue, some things will not. But uh, people will stop trusting late polls, people will stop trusting late momentum. And because they don't trust it, because people will have abused it when there was an opportunity to do so, uh, you are really going to wreck the opportunity for other parties to move up in the last couple of weeks. And ultimately, I don't think that's good for democracy, and I don't think that's good for turnout. I just don't. Carter, yeah, I think give, that it, give, give it me your, can be more short I th- midterm or long-term impacts. I, I, same question for you, right? Your midterm and long-term impact after the first race, after we get the quote-unquote, you know, um, uh, issues out of the system, after we deal with the the, the sort of nuisance of, of social media leaks, let's just say they're adopting this for a decade. What are the midterm impacts for you? Number one, uh, voter turnout's going to go down. Uh, the number one reason why people say they don't vote is because they don't have enough information. Uh, I think that's bullshit. I think you can find all kinds of information, but people want information handed to them. And one of the pieces of information they want handed to them is who's going to win. Um, who's the winner is a huge driver for voter intention. Um, it's one of the reasons that we talk about momentum all the time. Momentum is significant because people want to vote for the winner. The second thing that this is going to do in the long term is this is going to erode confidence in the outcome. Um, people will not have anything to point to that says, you know what? I expected that result and this result therefore meets, you know, is within the realm of possibility. That's a great point. The first time something comes out of the blue. Yeah. I mean, so at a time when people are peddling uh, the the idea that elections aren't safe and secure anyways, all of a sudden now Doug Ford wins a huge majority when people are pissed uh, because they didn't have enough information to vote because the less engaged voter chose not to to vote. That to me you know, all of a sudden that becomes a, a much stronger, much harder program for people to get on board with. You know, I didn't, I wouldn't have fucking voted for Doug Ford. Well, did you vote? No, I didn't have enough information. Okay. Um, but I don't trust the results anyways. I didn't have anything that gave me an indication that Doug Ford was actually going to win. Uh, especially with, if you start seeing really low voter turnout, any voter turnout below 35% could be really problematic. Uh, for, I mean, this is this is a fucking horrible decision. It just needs to be. It cannot be stated strongly enough that if this happens, we will be facing a, an erosion um, to our capacity to have a democratic country. We're going to leave that segment there. Moving on to our final segment, our over under and our lightning round. Stephen Carter, we do this for you, which is why Stephen Carter, even though you <laughs> well, have you do long-winded, soapbox-driven answer, we're going to start with you steven carter scale of one to ten danielle smith under ethics investigation one being eh, not too bad 10 being worst thing that could happen to her t minus less than oh, just a little bit more than six weeks after the election what are you giving it Stephen carter i'm giving it a four i mean it's certainly not great but there's enough time to kind of get out from under it i mean we we were under a whole bunch of things uh in 2012 um, at this time of, of the election, we still won. Uh, the electorate can and will change their minds, especially if polls get released in the last two weeks of the election. <laughs> Corey, what do you think? Scale of one to 10, Danielle Smith, ethics investigation. What is it for you? Uh, the whole overall bundle for me is an eight or a nine. Like this is a, this is a pretty significant problem to have with fewer than two months to an election. I just, I, I, you got to accept and acknowledge that the actual ethics commissioner investigation, I'm going to need to do a little more digging, understand a bit more of the scope. But my, my feeling right now is it is probably, it has the possibility of presenting a false negative, right? Mm. Like a clean bill when actually there is a bit of a problem here. So um, in that way, it could be very beneficial to Daniel Smith, depending on what happens. So I'm going to ultimately end up probably where Stephen is like a four, right? This is not the big thing. The big thing is the big thing. And the court of public opinion, the overall conversation about judgment, that is the challenge for Danielle Smith. Now, if the ethics commissioner comes back and says, this was a violation, that will be a challenge. But I don't know if we're there yet based on what we know. Corey, I'm going to ask you this about the federal liberals. So we're moving to the federal scene for a second and over under on six. Okay. So six is the number. Is it over or is it under the parliamentary budget officer this week stated that by 2030, 
When the price of carbon is expected to reach $170 per ton, most households will see a net loss despite the rebate payments offered by the federal government to offset the surcharge. So ultimately concluding that the carbon tax may not be, as the liberals have said, for the longest time, revenue neutral. It was one of their hallmarks, their calling card, or their sort of branding line um, for the carbon tax that they have implemented. Now, there are many liberal MPs saying, go run the numbers again, because we're certain that they're wrong. There's some incorrect analysis. Others are arguing, regardless of what the facts are, Corey, as a political problem for the liberals. Is this an over or an under on six for you? Well, let's just start with the PBO was a really bad idea because it gives this sense of like this arbiter of yeah. what things are going to be. And of that's truth, really yes. unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, I understand it's based on the American Congressional Budget Office model, also a bit of a problem, but at least there, there's the logic of reconciliation and all of the other considerations that need to go into it that just, they don't apply in the same way here. And yeah, I mean, I guess what I would say is the PBO can and does make mistakes, so we can't take it as gospel, but many people do take it as gospel. And for that reason, I think this is like a seven or an eight. This is a problem. Because it blows up a talking point that liberals have used uh, with careless abandon over the past bit. And, you know, live by the PBO report, die by the PBO report. Let this be a lesson to you. Um, Ultimately, though, I do think the liberals can resolve it by saying, well, if that ended up being the case, we would increase the rebates or something to that effect. So it's not an unsolvable problem, but it will certainly complicate their communications on this particular file over the next bit. Carter, you know, yeah. it seems like the liberals have faced two two things on the carbon tax recently. First is that, you know, Biden, their their political ally, one would say, in the United States as part of his IRA um, Inflation Reduction Act on, in tackling climate change has not issued a carbon tax, which gave a talking point to conservatives as it related to carbon pricing doesn't have to be the only way we, we solve this. And secondly, this PBO report, Carter, same question for you over under on a six as it rates to a political problem for the liberals. I think it's a it's under a six. I mean, uh, the PBO is something that uh, I mean, sure, a talking point has been erased uh, and it will be uh, the conservatives will be jumping up on up and down on it. But it turns out the, the conservatives haven't been really that fond of the carbon tax from the beginning. Uh, so it basically puts everybody back into their into their regular places. Liberals still support a carbon tax. Conservatives don't like a carbon tax. Here we are again. I just don't think it's going to be a significant piece. Uh, the PBO, I agree with Corey, though. Um, if it were up to to me, that's, that sucker would be gone uh, in the first term of whatever government comes in next. Carter, second last question. We're going to start with you. How likely on a scale of one to 10, one being not going to happen, 10 being this is definitely going to happen. Do you think this um, blind two week, final two weeks uh, with no polling is is likely to be adopted in Ontario. Give me your, your sense of this. Uh, I know the stakes. We know the terrain. We discussed it. But give me your sense of on a scale of one to 10, a Stephen Carter prediction. Uh, what what likelihood will this uh, will this land in, in Ontario? I don't think it's going to happen. I think the media organizations are going to to jump in and and bang on this. I think the polling firms are going to bang on this. And ultimately, I think the, the political parties are going to see the the challenges that this could bring in the long term. Um, hopefully it doesn't happen. I mean, if it does happen, um, it, it, hopefully it doesn't withstand a court challenge. That's that's really all, all we'll be doing at that stage is uh, hoping that uh, the courts are able to rectify a really, really negative situation. Corey, scale of 1 to 10, how likely is this to happen in Ontario in your mind? I, it's not going to happen. It's a bad idea. People will realize it's a bad idea. We've talked about a few reasons it's a bad idea. I could throw a few more on the table. How about for the fact that it's just in Ontario? So what's stopping, for example, the Western Standard based here in Alberta of running a poll and publishing a poll online in Ontario in those final two weeks? Absolutely nothing is the answer. So like, th this is the challenge and... um it's one of like a trillion challenges with it. It's just not going to happen because it can't happen because it's just too stupid to live. <laughs> just too stupid to live, Corey. Too Final question for you. Yeah. This Friday, Katie Telford, the prime minister's chief of staff is set to testify on foreign interference. Corey Hogan, any words of wisdom that you would have for Katie Telford as she heads into this 
um, testimony. She's going to testify at the House Affairs Committee uh, on the issue. Your words of advice for her, Carter, I'll end the show with your words of advice for Katie Telford as she heads into this on Friday. Yeah, big moment. One of the challenges that they have on this particular file is every time China comes up, this issue can potentially kick back up into the foreground. This has the opportunity even beyond that to kick the issue back into the foreground. Uh, Obviously, the CPC is out for blood on this and the NDP is going to find their moment too. Don't say too much. Don't say too little. It's the same advice you'd give to anybody at one of those committee hearings. Show yourself to look competent. Don't look evasive. Evasion will kill you at this particular moment. You've got to look like there's nothing to hide and that any any kind of reservation comes from a sincere concern with security. But don't don't push that button so hard that it comes off phony. Carter? You know, yeah, she's appearing would, after liberals launched a filibuster. So she wasn't like she wanted to do this. She's here because she was forced to be here. They ultimately voluntarily relinquished and she's showing up. So knowing that background, advice to Katie Telford. Uh, I, I would try and make it look like you want to be as open as humanly possible. I would imagine that she'll be bringing counsel in. Um, that counsel will be talking about national defense issues. Um, make the counsel the bad person, but always make it look like you are trying to answer the question as honestly and as fully as possible. And if something can't be answered uh, for reasons of national security or reasons uh, or, or otherwise, make it your counsel's responsibility to stop your answer. Actually make it look like you're about to lean into the microphone and speak your truth and have your counsel, you know, counsel put your his or her hand on your shoulder to say, I'm sorry, I have to say something. I have to interject. Counsel should be the person who is keeping the information uh, from the public, not Katie Telford. Corey, what do you think of that strategy? I think it's it's okay. I would actually riff on it a bit and say, if you, and rather than say no, try to find moments to say, well, that would be a good thing to bring up at one of the national security committees. That's not something we can talk about in this particular session. And so look less like you're evading and more like you're redirecting to an area where that conversation can occur. Nicely done. We're going to leave it there. That's a wrap on episode 1048 of the strategist. My name is Zane Velji with me as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter, and we'll see you next time. 